This is The Guardian. Today, how the death of a young woman in custody has sparked nationwide demonstrations in Iran. Mahsa Amini was a 22-year-old small-town girl from the Kurdish region in western Iran. She was visiting the capital, Tehran, with her family. She is on the subway in Tehran, gets off at a station inside the city, and is stopped by the morality police with her brother. It was an encounter that happens hundreds of times every day in Iran. A young woman stopped by the authorities, wanting to inspect her clothes. And from there, it starts to escalate. She's then detained for supposedly not being dressed appropriately according to the mandatory hijab laws and the Islamic dress code, and she's taken to the detention center. A few hours later, she ends up in the hospital in the coma and then eventually dies. Her family says she was a healthy 22-year-old. The state maintains that she had underlying health conditions and died of a heart attack or just a sudden collapse. Her family says that she was subjected to violence, and that's the reason for her death. In cities across Iran, night after night, protesters are chanting Mahsa Amini's name. And the slogan, Women, Life, Freedom. The protests are still going and spreading around the world, even as the Iranian government's response gets bloodier. So how did one woman's death become an international movement? And how far could it go? From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the women's uprising that's ignited Iran. Nagar Mortazavi, you're a journalist and analyst from Iran who's now living in exile in Washington, D.C. And I'd like you to start by giving me a sense of Mahsa Amini, the kind of young woman that she was. I think what resonates with most Iranians is that she was a normal girl. She was a very normally dressed young woman from a small town. And what a lot of women are essentially saying is that this could have been me. They see themselves in Mahsa Amini. A lot of men see their own sisters in Mahsa Amini. So The solidarity with her is more about her being just such a normal girl who ended up in this circumstance that the morality police has been creating for many, many women in the past because this piles on on so many images, videos, and uh, photos of the morality police actually committing violence against women on the street. It's essentially turned into a form of harassment against women in the public. That's why I think her image, her death... Uh, And just the simplicity of her resonates with so many people. And tell me a little bit about the the morality police and why exactly they they hauled Mahsa Amini into their van that day. 
So the morality police is part of the larger police force. They're literally called Gashte Ershad, which means guidance patrol, the patrol that is supposed to quote-unquote guide women and men and to enforce the country's mandatory hijab law, the Islamic dress code. And over the years, many brave women have refused to be quote-unquote guided by this guidance patrol. They have the authority, just like the police, to detain, to arrest. They have these police vans, so they throw women in police vans, famously filling up the vans, sometimes with a lot of violence, kicking women, beating women, pulling them into the van and then they take them to this detention center for further quote-unquote guidance it includes a lot of harassment and violence and women have been recording these images just eyewitnesses have talked about it and many women have witnessed it they witnessed this violence in person and what's incredible is that sometimes even religious women uh, get stopped by these women. So hijabi women who observe the hijab in the private of their own home go outside wearing the same dress code and they get stopped by this morality police because the agent didn't deem what they were wearing Islamic enough. So the limits of it have also become so subjective over the years. I even saw some religious Iranians on social media asking, what exactly was wrong with what Mahsa Amini was wearing? Now the big question is, why was she stopped? And what was so wrong about the way she was dressed that she had to essentially die for it? And Nagar, do we know what actually happened to Mahsa Amini from the moment she was stopped by the morality police? Is there any clarity on, on how she came to be, to be injured, whether she was beaten, how she ended up in hospital a few days later? The family and uh, friends around them say that she was subjected to violence. The authorities are maintaining that they didn't use violence and they're claiming that she had this health issue. But there was this video released by the Iranian police and it was aired on national television, state television in Iran. The security forces have released this CCTV footage of Mahsa in detention. It's heavily edited. The video starts with her outside the detention center, walking in with a group of other women who were arrested. And then it cuts to a scene inside the detention center. We see a few seconds of her sitting down with a group of women in this room where they're supposedly waiting to be trained or guided further by experts. And then she gets up to go talk to one of the agents a female agent who who starts, there's no audio in the video, but you, we just see that she starts examining her scarves in a very uh, humiliating way that a lot of women have experience of how the morality starts sort of touching your dress, explaining to you why this is too short or it's too tight or it's too long or it's too colorful. And then again, the video cuts to when she's lying on the floor and then it cuts to a moment where the emergency personnel are taking her away in a hallway. So it's these short moments that are put together with the aim of saying she was fine and she was healthy and she suddenly collapsed on her own. But we don't see what's happening in between when these this video is cut. Some doctors are saying you can be beaten on the head and not necessarily collapse right after, and it could take a while for you. You can walk around and then have a concussion later. And then when she 
falls down on the ground we don't know how exactly she ends up from collapsing onto the ground how long she was laying down there when did the emergency get to her so there's a lot of unanswered questions there has been time and time again that the Iranian government has essentially lied or has lacked transparency looking into these issues and that's where the lack of trust is rooted in the society okay so she dies and she dies under mysterious circumstances. How does reaction start to build among Iranians? So Mahsa's image first started circulating on social media. I first saw the image of this young woman lying on a hospital bed with bruises on her face and on her head. And the news was that this woman went into the coma after being arrested or being subjected to a violent arrest by the morality police. And then a little while later, we hear that this woman died. So it first started by anger and the circulation of the photos and the information and hashtag on social media. And then the uh, turn into street protest. And turn into a very, very angry street protest by these young Iranian women. A lot of women are leading these protests, but also allies, men, shoulder to shoulder. When you see the images, they're incredible. These young women without the hijab or some throwing their scarf in the bonfires on the street, cutting their hair. All of these are very symbolic ways of showing resistance and defiance. The anger, I think, came with the state's response, immediately claiming that there was no violence, immediately putting out this edited video as uh, quote-unquote evidence that they committed no violence and she was perfectly fine in detention and collapsed on her own, putting pressure on her family as they've done time and again to not speak to the media, to not speak up, to have a very limited funeral process, to make sure the funeral doesn't turn into a protest test and all of these responses step by step have just been adding to the anger and the agony of the family and also the people around her her community she was from the Kurdish community in western Iran who've long been oppressed and discriminated against by the central government and also just your average ordinary Iranian across the country. It's really cutting across lines within the Iranian society, class lines, different demographics. I saw this hashtag of hundreds of thousands of users on Instagram, religious women essentially saying, I am hijabi, but I'm against the morality police, meaning I observe it, but don't enforce it on other people with this form of violence. We even hear from some religious scholars. I saw this grand ayatollah, Bayat Zanjani, saying that this is immoral. This is not in line with the religion. You're not supposed to use violence, in this case, lethal violence, to impose this stress code on people. This is supposed to be a choice. As protests in Iran broke out and spread across the country, a network of activists and researchers have sprung into action, trying to track exactly what's happening in a place where independent journalism just isn't possible. Do you 
They include people like Raha Bahraini, a human rights lawyer who works for Amnesty International and who's been staying up most nights on the phone with demonstrators. We have received dozens of uh, messages from eyewitnesses and protesters and relatives whose loved ones have been injured or uh, killed. So, Raha, tell me, how have you seen these protests spread across Iran? The protests initially started on the 16th of September in the city of Saqqas, the city where Mahsa and her family lived and where the funeral uh, took place. Women cry death to the dictator and wave their headscarves at her funeral. The inscription on her gravestone reads that she's not dead. Her name will become a symbol and live forever. Uh, by uh, 19th of September, the protest spread to other uh, Kurdish-populated cities in Kurdistan province, Kermanshah province and West Azerbaijan uh, province. A woman stands calmly in front of a water cannon until it has to reverse. And here, a police motorbike is set on fire. The woman filming shouts, look, we've got nothing, but we made them run away. And Raha, as these protests have erupted and spread across Iran, how did the Iranian authorities respond? The Iranian authorities have been violently quashing uh, protests that started peacefully in various cities across the country. Initially, on the 19th and 20th September, the evidence that we collected showed a pattern of security forces unlawfully using birdshot and other metal pellets uh, to injure protesters and to disperse them. Metal pellets are completely prohibited in the use of policing uh, because they are indiscriminatory. And as soon as they are fired, uh, the um, pellets get scattered and can result in injuries all over the bodies of protesters and bystanders. We gathered evidence that showed uh, security forces fired such metal pellets at close range against protesters. And as a result, people uh, sustained uh, severe injuries in their eyes. In addition, because they were uh, fired at close range, a number of people sustained fatal injuries and sadly lost uh, their lives. As we were trying to investigate the crackdown, the Iranian authorities uh, began disrupting the internet and uh, communication lines in order to cover up the crimes that were committed by Iran's security forces across the country. And Raha, how do they do that? How can they just close off the internet to a whole neighbourhood or a whole city or even the entire country? The Iranian authorities have invested heavily in the internet infrastructure in Iran in order to ensure that whenever uh, protests erupt in the country, they shut down the internet or they disrupt the internet in the areas uh, that unrest has emerged in order to suppress protests and prevent people from mobilizing and also to prevent information from reaching the outside world. Internet is now shut down in large parts of Iran. Last time this happened three years ago, hundreds of people were killed. There are fears that more lives are at risk. 
The Iranian authorities are also heavily using security cameras to identify those who have taken part in the protests. We have received accounts from uh, eyewitnesses in various cities where uh, in the immediate aftermath of the uh, protests in various locations, security and intelligence officials have raided the houses of dozens of people and carried out violent arrests based on facial recognition information they've obtained from uh, security cameras. Phone lines are also heavily under surveillance in Iran. When the Iranian authorities uh, filter WhatsApp, uh, Instagram and other social media and instant messaging applications, access to information becomes extremely difficult because there is no safe way to communicate with people through the phone because uh, phone lines are heavily monitored by uh, the security and intelligence apparatus. And Raha, as the authorities began to throttle the internet and to just take it down completely in some cases, what was happening on the ground? What were the Iranian authorities trying to hide? Disruptions in internet and communication uh, phone lines are generally accompanied by an escalated uh, use of a lethal force. And this has been uh, the pattern that sadly has happened this time as well. The number of deaths heavily increased um, on the 20th September. And this was around the time that the internet has been shut down in various locations. Under the darkness of the internet, the Iranian authorities have been carrying out a brutal assault on human life. Yeah, and we've just seen, as of yesterday, the death toll has surged over the past few days to at least 40 people confirmed to have been killed, according to your organisation, Amnesty, although the real toll is thought to be much, much higher. But, Raha, how do you track this kind of information? Once the internet goes down, how do you find out what's happening in Iran? Once the internet goes down, it becomes a lot more difficult to obtain uh, eyewitness uh, accounts and testimonies. Uh, however, people are still very brave in Iran and try to find various means to convey the information that they have obtained to the outside world. And as soon as the internet uh, gets restored in some places, we receive a stream of messages and phone calls from people on the ground who share their uh, information and the videos that they have recorded uh, with us. Then they go offline for a number of hours and we just wait for them to reconnect at some point during the night to receive additional information. And to the best of your knowledge, what's the situation on the ground at the moment? What's going on there? There is still uh, unrest in various places across the country. In Tehran, over the past several nights, people have taken to the streets. In smaller cities, locals are reporting to Amnesty International that the streets are heavily patrolled by security forces. And as a result, it's almost impossible for people to gather in one spot. In addition, the Iranian authorities have carried out hundreds of arrests in uh, various cities, like in some small towns, over 100 people have been reportedly arrested. And this has also further suppressed the possibility for people to uh, mobilise. Coming up, why protesters are still going out, despite everything the Iranian government is throwing at them.
it starts the same way. Can I tell you a secret? It would start off with a random girl and just say, hey, hun, I'm going to tell you some secret now. Please don't mention it to anybody. But it quickly escalates. It just spread like a wildfire. I still sleep with clubs next to my bed. I didn't know how far this was going to go. People seldom show their true selves online. But one man, he's taken it much further. I was terrified. Who is the cyberstalker behind these messages? He actually said to me, good luck proving it's me. And why is he sending them? Because he became more and more isolated, he just went within himself even further. Do you punish someone for acting out whatever is going on in their mind that we don't understand? And if I could just turn back the clock? From The Guardian, I'm Shirin Kaler, and this is Can I Tell You a Secret? A story about obsession, fear, and the lives we lead online. Listen to all episodes now. Search for Can I Tell You a Secret? wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Nagar, one of the really notable things about these protests is that they've had women at the very forefront. And you told me earlier about the mandatory hijab law, but I want to understand what are some of the other issues that women are raising out there in the streets? So uh, the Islamic Republic has laws that are rooted some in Islamic beliefs, mainly starting with the mandatory hijab, which is the most visible one. There's also a lot of discrimination in other areas, in family law, in marriage, in child custody. Women need all kinds of permissions from males in their family, either the father if they're unmarried or their husband if they're married on where they can work, where they can live, if they can travel outside the country, the custody of their children, and inheritance. So it's also very much rooted in patriarchy. We sometimes forget that this is not necessarily only religion, but also patriarchy, a combination of years and years and centuries of these deeply rooted patriarchal and also religious beliefs that have created this complex system of discriminatory laws against women. Although Iranian women have made a lot of progress over the years and over the decades, they have um, worked so much harder than their male counterparts. At some point, the number of Iranians getting into universities across Iran was more than men. It was around 60 to 40 or 50 something um, because they tried harder. At, and at some point, the government was creating these quotas for men in universities to make sure that more women don't get into certain um, male-dominated fields, uh, cutting women out. Wow, they had to actually put in quotas just to make sure that there were enough men at university. In certain fields, that deemed more, more masculine, yes. And, um, and women have made a lot of progress. They are now business leaders, business owners. They've made progress in uh, various positions, in politics, in, in society, in the civil society. But they have to work very hard, much harder than their male counterparts um, to be able to, to make progress. There is also a vibrant women's rights movement. There has been over the decades. 
women have been uh, fighting for their rights and for equality for about 100 years. So it's been an ongoing struggle and they have made some progress. And I think where Iranian women are right now and also the bravery and the courage and the maturity that they're asking, they're demanding for their rights, for dignity, for equality is just incredible. But then there's also a lot of glass ceilings uh, above their head and there's a lot of limitations that have held them back. And we've just heard from Raha about what's happening on the ground, the way these protests have spread from one or two Iranian cities to now up to 80 across the country. And I'm wondering why you think Mahsa Amini's death, which is by no means the only death in custody in Iran, has snowballed to become this enormous movement. Well, we have to remember that protests were sparked by the death of Mahsa Amini and with the slogans against the morality police and the mandatory hijab. But there's also very radical slogans being chanted against the entirety of the government and the state and the political system, the political elite, because there's a lot of underlying grievances political, economic, social, cultural, that have been building up by the young generation. Iranian economy is in very bad shape, in part due to U.S. sanctions, but also due to a lot of corruption and mismanagement inside the country. It's just layers and layers of anger piling up. And by the young generation who doesn't see a lot of prospects, they don't see prospects as far as the economy. There's a lot of unemployment. Even elections are not really seen as a path for change by people. So the avenues for change have just been so narrowed or non-existent that people just see the street as, as a way to show their anger and show their defiance and their demand and i think what's significant is because you have part of the religious um, community joining in you have some religious scholars even speaking up and now you have these debates i saw three or four very interesting debates on iranian state television which was unprecedented of people actually going on tv debating um the very existence of the morality police. A large political party was calling for the abolishing of the morality police and the mandatory hijab law. So I'm hoping that this would be a turning point and a wake-up call, essentially, for the authorities. Hmm. Nigar, on the one hand, it's surprising that in a society where people have so much to be frustrated about, it's the death of this one young woman that sparks these massive protests. But on the other hand, You've painted us this picture of a country where women are highly educated, where they fill the workforce, where there's this vibrant women's movement, and it's constantly rubbing up against these incredibly harsh restrictions, including on the way that they dress. And so maybe in that way, we shouldn't be surprised that what's set things off, some of the most significant protests in Iran for decades is the death in custody of a woman, of Mahsa Amini. Yes, indeed. It's incredible. And again, this goes back to those years and years and layers of anger because what's been happening is that women have been fighting this morality police and this violence and this mandatory hijab for decades, since essentially the beginning of the Islamic Republic 
after the revolution, when the mandatory hijab laws started being imposed, one of the first protests in the country after the revolution was actually by women who were protesting this mandatory hijab law. So this, in a way, 40 years later, is a continuation of what the previous generation took to the streets for. Back then, they couldn't stop the enforcement. But over the years, Individually, women have been fighting and resisting the hijab law. And the testament to that is, I, I urge your audience to go and search and look for photos of women in public in Iran in the 1980s, then compare it to the 1990s, then to the 2000s, and then to today. Back then in 1980s, what the state deemed acceptable public dress code was long, solid colors, dark colors, black, brown, navy, and no hair showing. So only the face, only your hands up to the wrist and everything else covered. But women started pushing back slowly, slowly, but gradually millions of Iranian women. And now when you look at the images, everything has gotten shorter, tighter, lots of color. And now it's not a matter of just your face showing. It's a matter of how much hair is being shown and how women are using creative ways of pushing back. I live in exile. I haven't been back to Iran for 13 years, but I see images and I talk to a lot of people who travel to the country or live there. A lot of young women have just defied the mandatory hijab rule and they just basically go in the street without observing it until the moment they see a morality police um, they may throw the scarf over their head or even defy the police so women have been fighting against it for years and years individually or in smaller groups and this is the culmination of that in a collective fight a collective outpouring of anger and also with the death of Massa Amini essentially they're saying enough is enough you know we've been fighting you we've been defying and resisting you on the streets but it's gotten to a point of no return a turning point essentially a watershed moment of enough is enough that was Nagar Mortazavi a journalist and analyst based in Washington DC she hosts her own podcast on Iran it's called helpfully the Iran podcast thank you so much to her thanks also to Raha Bahraini a human rights researcher with Amnesty International that's it for today this episode was produced by Ruth Abrahams sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo the executive producer was Elizabeth Casson. We're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. 